This morning we're going to uh, turn our attention uh, to Acts chapter 13. I'm going to be reading uh, verses 13 through 41. The, the text is in your bulletin or you can have your Bibles uh, open. This passage that we're looking at uh, is a record, kind of a condensed record of a sermon that the Apostle Paul preaches in Antioch. Okay, so I'm going to be giving a sermon on a sermon, which is a a little bit odd to do. And so I want to uh, handle this passage a little bit differently than I, than I normally do. Uh, the first thing I just want to draw your attention to is the, uh, I guess the payoff of the sermon, which you can find there in verse 38. I want you to have this payoff in mind as we go through this sermon. In verse 38 and 39, Paul declares, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, that through this man, he's talking about Jesus, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed. And what they're freed from is that which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Okay, so that's that's the payoff of the sermon. Uh, This is the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. Paul, of course, is going to be the the fellow who essentially creates the church that that we are inheritors of all of us here today are christians because the apostle paul carried uh the gospel into europe okay and so he in some sense is our spiritual great grandfather uh and here we get to see him uh preaching now we are in the midst of the very first a missionary journey of the church. Uh, up to this time, the word of God had spread from place to place because Christians had moved from place to place. You know, there was persecution going on or maybe they were going for a business venture in another city. And they would b- bring their belief in Jesus Christ along with them, tell other people in that neighborhood. But at some point later, about 10 years after Jesus uh, is resurrected... The church finally sends out some men intentionally, ordains them for this purpose. Uh, Paul and, uh, well, Saul at that point, uh, Saul and Barnabas, and sends them out, supports them to begin to intentionally proclaim the gospel in other places. And so this is the first missionary journey. This is the first time the church has financed someone to go tell other people about Jesus. Last week we were taking a look at Paul's travels on the island of Cyprus. Now he's left Cyprus and he's going to go back to the mainland uh, where we're going to hear this sermon. So let me read this for you uh, and we'll talk about it as we go along. In verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in, in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, he said, okay, so this is the setup here. And then what follows is going to be Paul's sermon here in this synagogue at Antioch in Pisidia. Now, 
What you need to note up to this point is that John Mark, or he's called Mark here, or John here, John Mark, who's going to be uh, the author of the Gospel of Mark, has left. He was with them on Cyprus. They take the boat back to the mainland. He goes off back to Jerusalem. Uh, in a couple of chapters, we're going to see that this uh, uh, separation of ways was a kind of a desertion on the part of John Mark. Paul is not actually happy about this. John Mark, uh, I'm not sure if you uh, realize, is is the cousin of, of Barnabas. Now, when these men had gone to Cyprus, the scriptures describe them as Barnabas and Saul. And now that they're leaving Cyprus, these men are described as Paul and his companions. Okay, so it's on the island of Cyprus that... First of all, the name changes, that Saul becomes Paul, Paul being the Roman name, Saul being the Hebrew name. And it's also at this point that Paul emerges as the leader. Barnabas had been the leader on the way over, but something transpires on the island and Paul becomes the leader now that they've returned to the mainland. Antioch in Pisidia is a Roman colony. It's a it's a regional hub. It's a military and a civic center uh, in Galatia. And it seems that throughout Paul's missionary journeys, he strategically visits uh, important centers, preaches there rather than out in the hinterlands. We can assume because he thinks that if he converts the center, then then the margins will also be converted. Okay. Uh, so he goes to Antioch of Pisidia and he begins to preach in this way. We get a little clue in the passage that we've read so far about the flow of worship in a synagogue service during this time. And by the way, this is really important in terms of understanding what the Christian worship service looked like. The Christian worship service, of course, is based on synagogue worship. All right, And uh, there are a couple of places in Scripture where we get a little insight into what synagogue worship looks like. Here's one of them. Another one uh, shows up uh, in uh, the Gospel of Luke where Jesus preaches uh, in, in Nazareth. What, what we see here is, is, is that there are a couple of readings. The Torah is read. The prophets are read. Now, so the Torah would be read on a three-year cycle in the synagogue. The, the reading from the prophets would be brought in on a different calendar to support the main Torah reading. And then we see the leaders of the synagogue invite somebody in the congregation to speak on the passage. Now, I assume that there were times when the leaders of the synagogue might be the speakers themselves. But in the Luke passage, we see Jesus being invited up to speak. And here, Paul, a visitor in the city, is invited uh, to give a word of encouragement based upon the text that has been read there. And so Paul begins to preach. He begins to offer a word of exhortation. We see in the description of the early church worship services, obviously scripture would be read, but different people would pop up with a word of encouragement, with uh, an exhortation based upon the scripture based upon the scripture reading. We don't do that so much uh, in churches these days. There are some churches that are a little bit more open to the rising of members of the congregation to speak a word, uh, but we see the pattern here already in synagogue worship, and it's picked up in the early church as well.
Paul begins to preach. Men of Israel and you who fear God. So now here he's named the two categories of people who would have been present there in the synagogue. Men of Israel, these are descendants of Abraham. These are people who were born into the promise. Okay, They're the born and bred Presbyterians. And you who fear God, these are the people who've converted. Okay, So we see already present in the synagogue these two groups of people, people who are ethnically Jewish and people who are not. We know that this is an issue within the early church, particularly the book of Romans talks about conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Here in the synagogue we see the same pattern. And Paul distinguishes them. He addresses them both, but he distinguishes them. Men of Israel and you who fear God. He goes on to say, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, the man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in the son, in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So this sermon that he offers here is a kind of retrospective view of the history of Israel. He's looking back over what it is that God has done for the people of Israel over the passage of time. And notice that it's God who is the actor here. It's God who chooses the first ancestors. It's God who leads the people uh, into Egypt and uh, brings them out with his uplifted arm. It's God who is with them in the wilderness. It is God who destroys the seven nations and allows them to occupy their land. It's God who gives them prophets and gives them kings. It's God who then raises up David as this kind of special king. It's important to recognize that the people of God emerge as a numerous nation under the condition of slavery. You remember that uh, the 12 brothers go down into Egypt. They go down because of famine and they remain there. And they multiply there and they prosper as a nation there, but they're oppressed by the world that they're living in. They're in this world and yet somehow God has a special plan for them uh, that is separate from what's going on in that world. They're oppressed and so finally after 400 years of oppression, God lifts them out of Egypt because he has a special place for them. Leads them into the desert. They're unhappy complaining, oh, let's go back to Egypt. It was so good in Egypt, we had melons. I mean, maybe we were slaves, but we had melons. And then they enter the land. Seven nations are removed. The Hittites, the Girgasites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, all 
people who had been occupying the land. There are times when God will remove other people to make space for his people. That's what he does there in the land of Canaan. Scripture makes it clear that the removal of those seven nations was a judgment against them for their sin, particularly for their sin of killing their babies, which was an abomination before the Lord. And so the Israelites enter this land. God gives them judges. God gives them a king. And God gives them King David. In some way, the story of the people of Israel reaches a a kind of climax with King David. And then in this sermon of Paul, Paul jumps from King David all the way forward hundreds of years to King Jesus. Now this gap is bridged by the messianic prophecies that surround King David. The kingdom during the time of David had expanded its borders to their farthest reach. They were prosperous as they had never been. Their borders were secure. The worship of God was established in Jerusalem. David doesn't get to build the temple, but his son builds the temple. And as you know, things go downhill afterward. Things fall apart afterward. But here's what we read. This is Psalm 89. You might want to, if you have your Bibles with you, you might want to flip over there to Psalm 89. This is a... A messianic psalm about David. He's talking about David. But only at some point do you realize, well, actually he's not just talking about David. He's talking about Jesus as well. So let me read for you from Psalm 89. I'll begin at verse 20. I'm, I'm reading the easy reading version, ERV. I have found my servant David and anointed him as king with my special oil. I will support him with my right arm and my hand will make him strong. No enemy will ever control him. The wicked will never defeat him. I will destroy his enemies before his eyes. I will defeat those who hate him. I will always love and support him. I will always make him strong. I will put him in charge of the sea. He will control the rivers. He will say to me, you are my father. You are my God, my rock, my savior. And I will make him my firstborn son. He will be the great king on earth. My love will protect him forever. My agreement with him will never end. I will make his family continue forever. His kingdom will last as long as the skies. Now those, of course, who know the history of Israel know that within a couple of generations, the legacy of David mm, runs into trouble. The kingdom's divided. And eventually, there's not even a ruler in Jerusalem anymore that descends from David. And yet there's this promise that his family will continue forever. And the people of Israel knew this promise, and so they were always looking forward to the restoration of the kingdom of David. They were looking forward to a messianic savior. 
Back in our Acts passage, verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. Jesus has promised. Okay? We've gone from David to the Savior. There's been an interruption in the kingdom. The the kingdom reached a pinnacle and then things fell apart. But the promise has always been there that that a descendant of David would rule the nation, that this, this would be a forever kingdom. And so the people look forward with hope for the restoration of the kingdom, for a Messiah who would walk in and set things right. Of this man's offspring, of David's offsprings, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus has promised. Jesus is the fulfillment of what these people have been believing in for hundreds of years and looking forward to. The message of Jesus in some way is not at all new or novel. It's simply a fulfillment of the hopes of the people over many, many generations. Verse 24, before his coming, before Jesus' coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all of the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he says, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. We've leapt from David to Jesus, and then we have John as the prophet who points to Jesus as well. John, the final prophet uh, in the pre-Christian era. John is getting the ground ready for the coming of the Messiah. John is getting ready, getting the ground ready for the work of the kingdom of God. And the way that we get ready for the kingdom of God is by repentance and by return to the faith. If we had remained in the way, we would be in the kingdom. If we had remained in the way, there would be no need for a restoration. Because there is a need for a restoration, the only solution is repentance and return. When things are not as they should be, the call on us is to turn around and go back to where we left off. John preaches repentance and return. He has this baptism. It's not a Christian baptism. John is not a Christian. John is a Jew. But he's baptizing people out in the Jordan River. He looks strange. He dresses strangely. He's out there in the wilderness. People are traveling a distance, a dangerous distance, to go hear him preach. And his preaching apparently was blistering, calling on Those who thought they were Jews to finally become Jews, which is what the sign of baptism meant in that case. If you were a pagan, if you were a Gentile, and you wanted to become part of the people of God, you would get baptized. Well, we don't call it baptism today in Judaism, but you would get dunked in water, in living water, in flowing water. If you were to convert over at the synagogue, they would dunk you in a mikvah, And you would come up out of that as a Jew. Okay, so what John is doing is asking Jews to become Jews. It's as if he were to walk into this sanctuary and talk to a bunch of born-again Christians and say, You know what, people? You guys really need to convert. You need to come to Christ. You need to believe in the one who is your Savior. He's calling people who were living comfortably... 
in their religiosity and he's calling them to true faith, to repentance for where they are and what they've done. And he's calling them to be Jews and to mark that in this humiliating sign of being dunked in the dirty river the way that you would dunk a pagan who's finally becoming a Jew. He preaches repentance. And he points to Jesus. Well, you know what happens with Jesus. People see Jesus, but they don't understand him. Very few do. Maybe nobody did. And they reject him. Verse 26. Brothers and sisters, the sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation Oh, I'm sorry. Let me go back up to 24. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandal of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers and sisters, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him and though they found him guilty not they found him in him no guilt worthy of death they asked Pilate to have him executed. So they've seen the salvation of the Lord And even though they've been looking forward to this for years, even though they've been reading the prophecies of it in their services week after week, they don't get it. They 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 miss out on it somehow. Some people today view Jesus as a prophet or as a moral example, as a great teacher, as someone like Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi, someone that we admire and that we learn from. Someone who maybe was too good for us and was killed by the very people that he had come to help. Some people view Jesus as a kind of tragic paragon of high moral values. And those people miss out. They misunderstand who Jesus is. That's not who Jesus is. That's not what the Bible teaches. And it's not what the church has ever taught either. There is a difference between Jesus and Gandhi. There's a difference between Jesus and King. And that little difference is something called the resurrection. And the resurrection changes everything. Verse 29 And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. Now, it's strange, the story of the resurrection. 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. It wasn't just one or two isolated nut jobs. The resurrection of Jesus as a historical event is as verified as anything that you can find in the ancient world. It's not a legend. It's not 
mythology. But what does it mean, this resurrection? Why a resurrection? We Jews have been waiting for this king. We've been waiting for a savior, for a Messiah to sit on the throne of David. But we weren't thinking about a resurrection. What does it mean? Well, as it turns out, the clues to the resurrection were already present in the scriptures, but had been, had been misinterpreted. Verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us as children by raising Jesus as it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son today, I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2-7. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. That's a quotation from Isaiah 55 verse 3. Therefore, he says in another psalm, it's actually Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Now, these three passages held together indicate that David is not going to rot in the grave. If you put the three passages together, it looks like David's not going to rot in the grave, which of course can't be right. And so Paul goes on to explain, this is verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, he died, and was laid with his father and saw corruption. He rotted, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. In other words, these prophecies, these Old Testament prophecies were not pointing to David, but were Pointing to a descendant of David, to this messianic savior. Every Jew had been looking forward to this Messiah coming. Every Jew was looking forward to the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. And here it is in in Jesus. But now let's talk about the core of the gospel because the core of the gospel reaches far beyond the boundaries of the nation of Israel in verse 38 let it be known to you therefore that through this man through Jesus forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. All right. In those two sentences, uh, we have the gospel. Okay. That, that's the whole gospel right there. Now there are three things that are being mentioned here that through Jesus there's forgiveness of sins, that everyone who believes in Jesus is free, and the thing that they're freed from is something that the law cannot free you from. Now, what we're freed from is the wrath of God. What God saves us from in Jesus is the penalty for the sin that the law reveals to us. The function of the law, well, there are a number of functions of the law, but one of the functions of the law is to reveal to us our failure to satisfy the demands of God. 
Another function of the law is to show for us the path that we should walk. But when we don't walk that path, we realize, oh, well, you know, God has instructed me to live this way, but I didn't live that way. And then so in the law is built in penalties for that. The law reveals to us where we have gone astray. The law reveals to us God's path in life. But the law never sets us free. Because we can't keep the law. Because all of us fall short of the law. And so the only thing that the law can bring to us is condemnation. Now, believe me, we need to honor and Trust the law as our guide in life. If you live according to the law, you will prosper. You will be blessed by God. You'll be living in a way that's healthy and productive for yourself and for your community. That's what the law does. All right. When you love your neighbor and when you love God, as Jesus summarized it, the benefits of that are just tremendous. So let's not dishonor the law or let's not throw the law out the window and pretend that God doesn't care about the law. God does care about the law because the law is the character of God. It is God's own way of thinking about things. Okay? And he reveals that to us and he says, here's how you're going to do it. This is, this is how you want to live. But the problem is, is that we fail. That's just how we are. We're, we're born into that condition. We fail. And so then we are under the condemnation of the law. And we are unfree. Which is why we need a savior. To rescue us from the law. Paul knows that the good news might sound too good for the skeptical to believe. Everyone who believes is freed. Wow, that's quite a claim. And so he warns in verse 40, Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And here's his quotation. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Alright, so the good news of the gospel to the skeptical is too good to believe. That I can just believe in Jesus, that I can just trust in his life and his sacrifice and be freed from the burden of the law, to be freed from the condemnation that has come to me under the law. That seems too good to believe. Shouldn't I have to work to earn God's favor? Shouldn't I have to... Struggle more and earn my way into heaven? How can I just simply believe in Christ and be free from the penalty of sin? Paul knows from the very beginning of his preaching that that's an unbelievable proposition. And it is only by the grace of God that we can cling to that. There are others who would rather cling to uh, you know, the foolish idea that, well, you know, I've got to perform to satisfy God. And if I work at this a little bit harder, maybe God will be pleased with me. There's a comfort in that. Because it takes the control of my destiny into my hands. I'm going to work this out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to please God and then I'm going to get through the pearly gates and God's going to look at my grade card and let me in. 
well, or I can just believe in Christ and let his righteousness be my righteousness. Look, therefore, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Tremendous good news is offered. No, Not everybody grabs hold of it. And even in the offering of the good news, there's this warning about the rejection of the good news. Okay? All of you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of you know enough about the gospel to be held accountable to God. Alright? One day you're going to see God. Because you have an eternal soul. And when you die, your soul will fly into the presence of God. And you're going to have to give an account. Did you believe in Jesus? Did you accept him as your savior? Did you place your faith in him alone and stop placing your faith in either that God doesn't really care or that maybe I'm good enough? Okay? There will be an accounting one day. All right? So my call to you, you who've heard the gospel, is grab it. It really is good. Nobody regrets becoming a follower of Jesus. Nobody regrets believing in this good news. All right, Grab it. It may seem too good to believe. But it's the God's honest truth. And it's God's truth for you today. So let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you. We thank you for your law, which shows us the perfect way to live. But also points out to us where we have failed. Lord, give us the faith to believe the good news of the gospel. That in Jesus Christ, the perfect life has been lived. That in Jesus Christ, the atoning death has been offered on our behalf. And that by believing in Jesus alone, we will be saved. Lord, give us the faith that we need to be saved this day. And hold us in that faith all the days of our lives until we... See you face to face one day. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.